Welcome to Geek Catch-Up. I'm Kyle Eckert alongside Chris Heck. We're two lifelong friends with a passion for all things geek. Whether it's gaming, movies, television, wrestling, comics, whatever. If it's nerdy, there's a good chance we're into it. You are listening to another Wrestling Recap, part of our Spotlight series. And this time, we're breaking down the February 29th pay-per-view, AEW Revolution. Once again, before we get started here, Chris and I would like to take a moment to say thank you to everyone that's been listening. We are beyond thrilled that you've enjoyed the show, and if you'd like to help us spread that joy, the best thing you can do is share us on social media and with your friends. Catch us on Twitter and Instagram, at GeekCatchUpPod, on Facebook, GeekCatchUpPodcast, and of course our website, GeekCatchUpPodcast.com. Thank you so much, and remember to stay saucy. Since launching the company last year and debuting their weekly live show, Wednesday Night Dynamite, in October of 2019, AEW has taken the wrestling world by storm and refused to look back. At that time, they were establishing a new worldwide brand and immediately became a legitimate competitor to the WWE as the Wednesday Night War exploded into action. Thriving off of reintroducing fans to a who's who of the world's top performers, and an industry craving something fresh, they proceeded to execute Full Gear, a strong pay-per-view event in November that delivered end-to-end with exciting matches, but little else as there was minimal time for story building outside of the main event between Jericho and Cody. However, last night's Revolution event was the opposite, bringing us a card stacked top to bottom with payoff matches for feuds that have been escalating for months in various ways. To me, This is where AEW proved that they have a roster full of capable storytellers who can create meaningful drama both in and out of the squared circle. Kyle and I are going to take you through each of the eight matches from last night in Chicago, and first up, we're starting with the pre-show. So in that pre-show match, we saw the Dark Order go up against a relatively known tag team in AEW, the former tag team world champs, SCU. Kyle, what did you think about this match for the pre-show? I thought it was a pretty solid match for the pre-show. Had a lot of pretty cool little spots on it and a a nice surprise at the end after the match ended. You know, a hometown favorite came out and made an appearance. So overall, as a pre-show match, it definitely set the tone, put it off in a nice direction. And typically with those pre-show matches, you want to hook an audience because it is being broadcast on YouTube Live and other areas for free for people to see. So I thought, you know, as they got the show going, this was a perfect little rhythmed tag team match to hook people into buying the full pay-per-view. Yeah, I can't disagree there. I thought it was a hard-hitting match. You know, there was some build-up to this between the Dark Order and all that they've been doing with their promos and mysterious stuff as they attack folks and then SCU. Uh, Unfortunately, I thought it was a little pedestrian, just probably compared to the rest of the AEW tag team division. (laughs) (laughs) And what we're getting, you know, in and out each week, we're kind of conditioned now to expect just nonstop, high-flying, crazy fast pace. And these teams are definitely capable of some of that, but not as 
it's not the same style as a private party or a young bucks right so that i probably had to contend with more but otherwise i thought it was like you said a good match and then really it was all about what came afterwards you know i thought that the ending with the with the chaos with the mysterious person coming in you know an the end exalted of, one. the exalted one and then it ended up being a fake exalted one with christopher daniels you mentioned Colt Cabana showed up, and that was nice for the hometown fan, big indie guy, who actually signed with AEW right afterwards, apparently. Yeah, I saw that this morning that he signed with AEW, which is pretty big. I thought he was just going to focus on his podcast career. <laughs> you know, and, and really, there's a lot of stuff to to kind of get into with the Dark Order as far as, as what they're doing on a week-to-week basis. You know, they've got this weird website. They're trying to recruit folks. It's almost like geek sci-fi nwo you know <laughs> yeah and they've taken an interesting twist to it i like what they've done with uh evil uno has done on twitter for people that previously were hashtagging join the dark order he would give them personalized messages back on twitter okay. and that was that was pretty fun like he would basically it was obvious the same and he wears a mask so you can't see his mouth moving but he wears that lucha mask almost and then they put different audio behind it. And because you can't really see his mouth moving clearly, it all makes sense. But he essentially he takes your Twitter name and he's like, oh, say if I did it, he'd be like, Kyle, thank you for joining the Dark Order. Please await further instructions. <laughs> and it's like a little personalized Twitter. It's a nice like guerrilla movement. Yeah, yeah. It's They've been taking some different aspects with it. And that's probably been the more interesting side of things with this whole storyline to me, right? Is just what they're doing, kind of a little bit different approach and what it's going to build to. Like, I think that's kind of the question too, right, is really what the the payoff's going to be with all this Dark Order work. But um, but it did make for a fun opening pre-show. I, I really like the the combination moves the Dark Order does where they were, like, tossing the enemy, you know, back yeah. and forth, and then they'd finish with that power bomb. I thought that was kind of interesting for, for those two guys because Evil Uno's a big dude. You know, you can tell he's got some power, and then Grayson is a little bit smaller. He certainly has some strength to him. I thought it was interesting that Grayson, being the smallest guy in the ring, between the two, uh, between Kaz and Scorpio Sky on SEU side, and Evil Uno and Grayson on Dark Order's side, Grayson, being the smallest guy in the ring, had all the strength spots. He was the one doing all like the heavy lifting. That's a good point. And, and the double where they, you know, I guess he had Kaz in a powerbomb position. And then he looked like he was going to fold out of it, but then he lifted him back up and slammed him down. That's a good point. It's weird that the smallest guy in the ring is doing this. Why not (laughs) the three bigger, clearly more muscular ones? But, you know, to each their own, it it does give them a unique feel. Yeah. No, it it all worked out. And ultimately, we saw the Dark Order, you know, steal the win with the pinfall. Um, And I know we kind of just touched on it. But as soon as that happened, of course, it just digressed into full chaos. The little minions of the order came up and attack SCU. We get the Cole Cabana come in. And then really, Christopher Daniels, I was actually hoping that with that we were going to see the Exalted One, but clearly they weren't ready to to give us the payoff there, you know. Yeah, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. There's a lot of rumors about who that could be. And I don't. you saw Raven was on AW Dynamite yep. last Wednesday, so now there was like, oh, Raven is the Exalted One, but... A lot of rumors are pushing towards Matt Hardy because his contract is up with WWE. Right. I'd rather see a Matt Hardy just because he's more capable in ring than Raven is right now. But, you know, one of those older guys could definitely work. 
I think just Broken Matt Hardy would fit in perfect with that, right? You know. Yeah, it would be perfect. Take yeah, it to it another level. Too good. Let Matt Hardy get back to that full broken universe. Yep. And Raven, you're right. Raven's just too old to be <laughs> leading a band like that. I just don't know how, like, you know, at least with like Hardy, like you could actually build to Hardy being in ring with somebody, right? Like whether it's a Christopher Daniels or somebody like you. I, and I know Raven's still wrestling to some extent, but I feel like the two of them don't compare too much as far as in-ring ability at this point in their career. Just overall athleticism at their age. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Well, and Hardy was always a more athletic wrestler than Raven was even back in their prime, but definitely more to see there. I thought it was one of the bigger open-ended questions that they had from the night, especially in a pay-per-view where it felt like, like it was going to be all payoffs all the way through with all the builds and everything, you know, but I guess you don't want to spoil something like that too, too much on a pre-show. And in the world of wrestling, things have always got to be moving forward. Like you're always looking towards the next AW dynamite or the next pay-per-view like storylines don't stop. That is true. Speaking of not stopping, we aren't going to stop here. We're going to move right into the main card. This pay-per-view kicked off fast and furious coming out of that big turmoil at the end of the pre-show. And they ran right into the match between Dustin Rhodes and Jake Hager. This was the debut match for Jake Hager, formerly Jack Swagger of the WWE, if you don't know. He's currently the muscle, the big bodyguard for the inner circle and Chris Jericho. And this is one that has been building for a good couple of months. I mean, this this match dates all the way back to almost the beginning of AEW Dynamite, where Hager, shortly after making his debut, he broke Dustin Rhodes's arm when Jericho and Cody were feuding to set up full gear. So this was a long one in the making, a true you know, blood feud, if you will. What were your thoughts on this one? I really liked it. I thought the the weirdest thing of the whole match was Jake Hager making out with his wife right before the <laughs> match started. And then, of course, later in the match, Dustin Rhodes on the side of the ring getting a smooch in. And he had all that face paint on, so obviously it got on her face. But it was it was a really good showcase of Hagar's overall strength as well as his MMA style. Uh, because with, with the way the finish worked with the MMA background, but they made it work that Dustin Rhodes still got some moves in. He took him to the outside and ran Hagar into the post a few times. So it even the odds of Jake Hagar's youth and power, but Dustin Rhodes is experience in the ring and experience as a wrestler. He knows how to utilize things around him to even things out. Yeah. I mean, he definitely took Jake to the edge. You could tell, you know, towards the end, I almost thought Jake looked a little blown up, honestly. And maybe that was just part of it to, to help show that, that Dustin was able, even as an older guy, to, to take him to his limits. And he really had to pull it all out to to get over it. I thought, honestly, it looked like Hager had a little ring rust. You know, it had been a while since we'd seen him on a live pay-per-view event or even uh, a live match of any kind. He might have been doing some smaller promotion stuff, you know, since he left WWE, but mainstream wrestling this was the first match we got to see of him he definitely took more of the mma route he had some some moves that were very brock lesnar like when he opened up the match i thought when he like ran him into the corner and just started like giving him the 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 shoulder charge and the knees you know i was like why does every mma guy have to do this immediately but all in all i think it i think it works i think he's going to be able to build a good character coming out of this i just hope we see him more on dynamite and actually start wrestling 
Yeah, it'd be nice to see him run through some guys and get more matches on television to prove his legitimacy in the ring. Yeah. Um, just because they keep saying, like, oh, he's got this MMA background, he's undefeated, and when he fought for Shogun or whoever he fought for, and this and that. So you keep telling us he's a badass, but it's time that you show us that he's a badass. So maybe they throw him some jobbers and crush some people in the early going here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, most likely. <laughs> I definitely felt like he needs, like, immediately new ring attire. You know, it didn't seem to be working right off the bat there. Like, I don't know if you've had any thoughts there, but it just seemed odd. Like, his shoes looked too small, and then his his shorts looked super tight. Like, it just didn't look like it fit together. He's a, too big of a guy to be wearing things like that. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed to him going back to just the, the regular college wrestling singlet yeah. that he kind of wore in his WWE days. Uh, but then again, like, war, like kind of what Wardlow wears. Yeah, that could uh, work. That could work. That that would work. Or Rob Van Dam, he wears something similar. It, it's just a little more flattering to a guy with some size. Yeah, it just like the proportions looked off. And I know it's kind of a nitpicky thing, but it was just something uh, when we were sitting around watching it um, with the buddy that was here. You know, we started talking about some of that, and then just he is he's such a big guy. It looked like he was just wearing tiny clothes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's awkward when he's so tall because Jake Hager is. Six 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 five. Yeah. So when you're wearing trunks, knee pads, and then shoes, you get this weird break between like the knee to thigh. Yeah. And that just never looks right with really tall people. Yeah. Uh, go, just go with the pants or something. You know. It was a super hard hitting match. I, I like that they set the tone for the pay per view. Very aggressive. You know, we are going to beat the hell out of each other, and and it really just set everything off for for the rest of the show. There were some funny moments you alluded to, the kiss. I thought that when Dustin went over and stole the kiss from Jake's wife, it was just, it was a great, like, Goldust-esque move. Like, I just, you know, when Goldust would get guys into the corner and then kiss them and, like, all the makeup would go, like, it just struck me as something like that, like a callback from his previous days. But (laughs) it was, it really cracked me up because from there, towards the end of the match, Dustin delivered probably the slowest Canadian destroyer of all time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Canadian destroyer. They called it the Code Red. The Code Red. The Code Red, and it was, it, yeah. He was like, "Oh, they added. He added that to his repertoire back in his his match against Cody." And I'm like, "He probably shouldn't do that one too much anymore." His power slam though looked amazing. Yeah, the power slam was good, but then he goes to for the, the Code Red, and literally it was like it was like he was in slow mo. Like he kind of like jumped up all all old man like, and then he kind of like slid down him, and then like Jake had to like jump backwards, you know, to make it work. And it just it just looked terrible to be honest but apparently everybody these days has to do a canadian destroyer because i think we saw three or four of them in this entire pay-per-view i just kept marking them in order as i went through it was like there's a second there's the third yep i did the exact same thing (laughs) i have a running tally of all the different you know the panama sunrise the canadian destroyer code red whatever you want to call it it's the same move. Yep. Uh, and there, there was a few matches in a row where they all went down. Yeah, it was so odd. But other than that, you know, the match still came out pretty good. Probably wasn't the greatest match of all time and, and definitely wasn't match in the night, but it satisfied that feud. Um, ultimately, we saw Jake Hager win after choking out Dustin Rhodes with a triangle, standing triangle submission, and that led to uh, the referee calling for the bell. 
I expected Hager to win this match, even though everybody seems to really, really love Dustin Rhodes still in the, you know, the twilight of his career. But how did you think about the finish? Oh, I thought the finish was exactly what I thought it was going to be. This was maybe the easiest match to predict on the card. You've got Jake Hagar in his 30s, 40s. He's meant to look like a monster. You've got Dustin Rhodes in his 50s. And while he looks great in his 50s, he doesn't need wins to be over. And it's Hagar's debut match. It's exactly this. Everything ended the exact way I thought it would in that it would be a hard-hitting, big-time match, but then Hagar would get the win in the end because there's no way you're going to have a guy of that size lose his debut match when you want to bill him as a monster. For sure. Well, moving next over here, I honestly thought after seeing that this match, that it, it really stole the show. Um, second up, we had Darby Allen versus Sammy Guevara. And really out of all the matches on the card, this was the one I was kind of overlooking going into it. You know, I knew Darby puts on great shows. I knew Sammy puts on great shows. But it made me eat my words because from moment one, you know, if if Dustin and Jake Hager set the pace really well, Darby and Sammy took it to, you know, notches significantly above where it was. I mean, it just turned it up to 11 after uh, Jake and Dustin put it at a solid, you know, like 8-9 to get things going. What did you think here about Darby and Sammy? They were moving at 100 miles an hour. Just as soon as Darby Allen got in the ring, they started going 100 miles an hour. It was wild. From the opening suicide dive of Darby Allen, which I don't even understand the geometry behind how he dove through the ropes and, like, morphed through the pole. Like, how did he not (laughs) hit the pole at that angle? Because, uh, so, Sammy Guevara was standing directly outside the ring behind the turnbuckle. Like, on the ground. And he somehow dove through the middle ropes, missed the pole on the turnbuckle, and hit Sammy Guevara. And I was like, how did he do that? Like, what angle did he dive at to make that possible? It totally blew me away. And then there was a few other suicide dives, just nonstop action. By the time they got the table out, and we'll get into that, I was like, man, the bell hasn't even rang yet, and this match is already flying. Oh, yeah. It was at least 10 minutes before the bell rang after they started this, and the and the camera work was kind of interesting, whether it was on purpose or not, but that initial dive to start the whole conflict, they didn't catch Darby at the beginning on camera because he was coming out through his intro and then just right. went straight to it. Yeah. So it was a oh, huge yeah. surprise. And, and, yeah, I mean, those guys – those guys were just wild from start to finish. Incredible athleticism, but also not the cleanest match. You know, from an early on standpoint, you know, you get that initial huge dive, which worked out well. And then Darby went right back into the <laughs> ring and Sammy was kind of hanging over the the guardrails for between the crowd and the ring. And Darby comes for another middle rope dive and damn near LaParked himself. Oh, rest yeah. in peace with Parka. But like he went like neck first into the barrier. It was bad. That was rough. His foot caught on the top rope when he went to dive. It looked like it just clipped his heel. And it's just enough in a move like that to stop your momentum and you come up short. It that was a little a little iffy. I turned to my girlfriend, I was like, Well, that's why they call it a suicide dive. <laughs> like because <laughs> like, that move was wild, but these two young guys just throwing their bodies around. And like you said, it wasn't the cleanest match. There was a few hiccups. 
Uh, there was a move later that Sammy did off the turnbuckle. Uh, it was kind of like a knee stomp to oh, Darby yeah. on the outside apron. And it slipped and honestly looked like he put his foot straight through Darby's throat. Yeah, we, we um, all kind of cringed because it looked like he had he had missed it wrong and his full weight came down on Darby. And usually, I mean, we see those those moves, those coup de gras moves a lot, you know, recently with certain certain other wrestlers. And usually, you know, I mean, as soon as they hit them, they roll. And it's like, yeah. so they, there's very little contact, even though it looks vicious. And this was total opposite. I mean, he came straight through him and then kind of fell off of him. And we all cringed because we thought the same thing. Like, he just throat stomped him and it killed him. throat stomped him on the apron, which, uh, as we all know, the apron is the hardest part of the wrestling ring. Yep. So it, that is rough. Like, there, while there was a few missed spots, they're young, they're athletic. They were able to keep it rolling. Oh, yeah. So, And that's kind of the nice thing about the match. Like, while they did have these hiccups, the hard-hitting, nonstop action of it made it seem okay. So as long as they kept getting up, both competitors just kept getting up and coming at one another. So you're like, okay, that that one slipped a little bit, but it almost brought a sense of realism into the fight. Sure. Because you got to think, if you get into a real fist fight with somebody, you're not going to perfectly land each blow. Yeah. So there, there's going to be some slips. There's going to be some hiccups, but you're going to also want to keep fighting. and That's what these two proved. It's true. It's true. Well, and as we kept moving through here, I think still before the bell actually rang, you know, we've gone through all of these big hits. I know that Sammy at one point smacked Darby upside the head with his skateboard that looked kind of vicious. And then he, you know, he pulls out a table. And usually, you know, your tables are the the end match payoffs, you know, when everybody gets all pumped for something like this. And they're pretty much like, we're going to start with it. So he pulls out the table. Sammy climbs to the top rope the table's on the outside with Darby on it and Sammy Guevara hits I mean Ricochet can eat his heart out like he hit a 630 front flip I think it was a 630 that's what I calculated out yeah it was a 630 it was like two and a half three four five I don't know how many flips the dude did but it was huge and he goes straight through the table he looked like freaking Sonic the Hedgehog spinning through the air (laughs) dude that was amazing Sammy's it's the his 630 senton is a thing of beauty. Mm-hmm. It really makes no sense on how he gets that sort of rotation. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely wild. Yeah, I mean, he's not a huge guy, so you know, he's definitely got that ability to really like tuck it in and get the momentum. I think that's what helps some of those guys when they are able to do that and and then going to the outside, you know, having that extra height. I don't know, it was a masterful move. He pulled it off perfect. He crushed through the table. The match could have ended there, and I would have been super happy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anthony, who was here watching the match, I had to share this because I, I took it down as a note as soon as he said it. He go, he, you know, Sammy does the 630, comes to the table, and Anthony goes, so it's like we can watch Goldberg or we can watch this, you know? <laughs> which right? which is really going to be more exciting. And he totally, like, jabbed, you know, what happened with Super oh, Showdown. Really? <laughs> Goodness me. <laughs> and I was like, but you know, that is true. Like you look at stuff like this versus stuff like that. And how, how are you not going to gravitate to AEW when they're pulling off these types of in-ring stunts every week, you know, just yeah. blowing your mind. Well, it calls back to the attitude era with the Hardy boys and Christian and edge and the Dudley boys and their TLC matches where they're 
all they're borderline professional stuntmen. Yeah. It, where they're just putting their bodies on the line, jumping off ladders, going through tables, just doing insane spots. It gives it's that callback that we miss. There's so much of that, you know, that AEW gives you that we had as kids. That's the way wrestling was when we were kids watching it. And to see them do spots like this, you're like, oh man, like this is the part parts of wrestling that I miss. For sure, for sure. Especially just being every show. Like you know you're gonna get some of this in every AEW show. And it, it really makes it must watch television. You know? Just like what are they gonna do next? How are they going to continue to raise the bar? And actually, one way they did it was, well, I don't know, Darby showed the world how to do an actual Canadian destroyer. So there was number two. Yeah. <laughs> Canadian destroyer number two. <laughs> You know, it wasn't enough. He saw that that uh, Dustin Rhodes struggled with it. He wanted to make sure everybody knew this is a real Canadian destroyer, and he and he dropped one in there. But I thought, really, actually, with all of what we just talked about, I thought that what was even more impressive somehow was Sammy just showing off really another level of athleticism. When towards the end of the match, they're both up on the on the top rope kind of jockeying for like a superplex type maneuver, you know, where they're locked up arm and shoulder and Darby pushes Sammy off and Sammy moonsaults off yeah. the rope lands on his feet, comes running back, jumps straight up to the top rope and grabs him and then does another moonsault with a Spanish fly onto Darby. And it was just like, what? Two moonsaults within 10 seconds. I don't even know. Yeah, it would be a moonsault. And then let's not pretend that the the leap from the the mat to the top rope is not an easy leap. That's oh, yeah. probably a, a four-foot vertical. At least. Yeah, it's like a four- or five-foot box jump. <laughs> yeah. As impressive. And they didn't hesitate. And that's the trust that the two guys show in each other, that when they went to hit that Spanish fly, a lot of times if, if it's not hooked right, you see a moment of hesitation and let's get the lock right with, there's nothing wrong with that. It's professional wrestling. You got to work together and nobody wants to see somebody get hurt. Yep. But these two dudes in absolute trust being like, okay, we don't have it locked in perfectly, but go for it. I'll flip with you. And it looked, I mean, another kind of, it, it wasn't perfection, but damn, did it look like it hurt like hell? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And Sammy does great selling. Like he he is probably one of the best sellers in AEW right now. He's super dramatic. He gets over the top. Um, you know, we saw how awesome it was when he took that super kick a couple of weeks ago and just like broke in half literally. But I, I really thought that he did a good job all through this match selling. And I was kind of expecting that he was gonna get the win. And then it went the other way. You know, we saw him set that up really. He was going for the pin, but Darby kicked out. They have a little bit more of a tussle, and then Darby does this. I didn't really know what to call it, but he did this like over the top stunner right before he did the coffin drop to win. Oh uh, yeah, I don't know what that's called either. It's it's like his signature. Yeah, setup. I, I couldn't. I didn't catch the name, and and that's on me. But it, it's like one of those rotating DDTs, you know, where they get up on their neck and they spin around a little bit, or they come over the top and then they drop them into something. But it like finished in a in a stunner in a way. Yeah, and that was that exact moment. The way Guevara flipped out of that and sold, mm -hmm. I was like, man, Sammy Guevara is. I have it in my notes as well. Like he's just, his selling is so good. Yeah. Like like 
it's it's rock level flopping, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, he, he's up there. Yeah, rocks. Michaels came to mind when we were watching it last night. Just those over the oversells, and some people don't like that. I think it actually is hilarious and adds a lot. You know, you can't do it every single time, but as a match goes on and as the tension continues to build, you know, you get those more dramatic sells, and I think it just kind of elevates it a little bit more. Yeah, or it gives you a quick chuckle to like lighten the tension. That's true. Afraid these two dudes are about to kill each other for real. That is true. That is true. But after the the stunner move, like I said, Darby goes up to the top rope. He hits his classic coffin drop and pins Sammy one, two, three. You know, so Sammy just can't get real wins despite how how hard he's working. Just can't get there. And Darby Allen on the comeback. You know, getting the win, it's not bad. I, I predicted that Sammy would get the win here. I thought he would have some shenanigans, as I exactly put it up when I, when I tweeted it out. I was like, he's going to win by some sort of, like, heel, dastardly move, or maybe the inner circle is going to come out and Proud and Powerful is going to help him. Yep. But we didn't see that and gave him Darby the clean win, although I don't expect this feud to be over. That's very like, possible. I know that it was a bit of a payoff after Sammy hit Darby in the neck with his he like hurt his throat with the skateboard and everything a few weeks back yep. and so this was him coming back and getting revenge I still feel like we'll see more of Sammy Darby Sammy and Darby in the future I think we should and Darby seems to be getting a really strong following from the fans when he shows up on Dynamite he gets pops and last night he got pops you know for being Kind of a guy that when they first came out, I'd say, like, I was like, all right, that dude's talented, but wasn't high up on my radar when you've got Pac, Omega, all these other stars. Darby seems to really be kind of creating his own momentum, and it's probably one of these situations where AEW really is going to need a different title belt other than just the men's world heavyweight, but, like, I could see these guys battling it out for some sort of intercontinental type belt or u.s champion type belt whatever it may be tv or something yeah secondary men's belt and it's like man this would have been an amazing match for something like that but i just feel like darby is doing a great job for whatever reasons forcing their hand because the fans are just gravitating to him he's got a good look he's got great in move set and if he keeps putting on matches like this and he's only going to get more popular yeah yeah 100 percent as soon as this match ended, I literally thought for sure that that pretty much stole the show. You know, it was early, obviously, but I'm looking going, I did not expect this match to be this good. That was insane. This is going to just pull away and just somehow be match of the night. And then the next match happens. <laughs> and AEW and their freaking tag team matches just never cease to stop. They just keep pushing the metal. They just keep pushing the bar. And so the the next match on the card was the tag team championship between current champions Hangman Adam Page and Kenny Omega versus the Young Bucks. And wow, the excitement, the mind-blowingness of this match, just spot after spot after spot after spot. <laughs> it was just incredible. They told some serious stories leading into this, but then also during this match, and it seemed like the story just kept escalating with the questionable stuff that's going on between Hangman Page and the rest of the Elite. I don't know. This match had it all. What were your thoughts? Let's jump right into it. I 100% agree with you, and it's there's so many things you just said are things that I have like on my notes about this match. Like, 
literally Sammy Darby ended and I was like, damn, that might be match of the night. And then this match, the tag team championship match kicked into full gear. And I was like, wow, okay, never mind. This is match of the night. The Young Bucks might be. They talked about it on the broadcast. And then I, and I wrote it down for real. Like, the Young Bucks might be the best tag team I've ever seen. Like, just with their tag team moves, their abilities, that it's more than just high-flying, crazy super kicks and in-ring action, but they're they're telling stories, long-term stories, both in and out of the ring. That is what good professional wrestling is all about. For sure. And it was on full showcase last night with this match. I, I completely agree. They have blown me away. You know, I picked them as best tag team when we were talking about some of our best ofs a little while back. They they never put on a bad match, in my opinion, at least not in multiple years. Um, I did think that it was kind of interesting for, for how good they are and how much love they do typically get from the fans. I don't know if you caught it, but at the beginning when they came out, you know, they had that epic intro. They All the fans had these really cool LED wristbands that you could tell the production crew was controlling because they were doing all these different patterns and you know different colors and it was all synced in that was a cool aspect but the young bucks were getting booed yeah they were and it wasn't hardcore booze but it was it was enough to be audible and i could not believe truly how much adam page was getting popped like no matter what hangman did you know he's doing heel moves he's spitting in the jackson's face being a total ass, he's trying to take everything to the next level and like hurt guys with some of the things that happened through the match. And yet, every time the fans would just start cowboy shit, cowboy shit, and just <laughs> explode, right? And and it's like, man, you got the young bucks. I, I don't know. It just that was an interesting dynamic for me that I was really surprised that that's how the fans reacted there in Chicago to those two groups, given how they've built this story. Yeah. Well, it was a perfect. Split down the middle, because you still see the Young Bucks are supposed to be faced. They're still good guys. Kenny Omega and Hangman Page are still faces as well. They're still good guys. and But there's this friction building, so it's this, well, who who's wrong in this situation? Is it the Jacksons or is it Hangman Page? And that's what we said, like, just excellent in-ring story. They flip-flopped so many times on the crowd. Like, the crowd literally didn't know who to cheer for and who to boo because they were so excellently telling this story of like, okay, both both of these parties are doing wrong. Yep. Both neither is a totally stand up right or wrong person here, and that's what I I was loving it. It was it for me. I thought maybe by the end, like so much has been built that we're gonna see a Hangman Page turn, right. and he's gonna go full heel. But you never know. Like this had shades of 1994, 95 Bret Hart, Stone Cold Steve Austin match where like Austin comes in as the heel, Bret Hart comes in as the face, but through this the sheer gravity of the match and intensity of it all, it they flip-flopped. And when that match came out, nobody liked Bret Hart anymore and everybody loved Stone Cold Steve Austin, and I really saw that starting to happen in this match. I was like, "Wow, if the Young Bucks were supposed to be the good guys coming into this match, I don't know if they still are coming out of this match." Right. And they pulled it off perfect and it was and it was it was just it's just masterful storytelling because when they came in like that hangman immediately escalated things first and then you know he wanted to put one of the jacksons through the uh, the timekeeper table and Kenny came over and stopped him it was like nah bro we're all bros 
but it, it really had this feel of like like when a group of friends are are at a party or doing something and it's like everybody starts pushing each other's buttons and like you know you really shouldn't but you just keep egging them on because you know them and you know what gets them pissed but but as it went through right then the jacksons started doing things that were more and more heel like and you know pushing their things to the uh, to the edge right like what they would normally yeah. do and at one point i think nick had to stop matt from you know like damaging kenny omega's shoulder and so yeah. just stuff that you really don't see and it also could have been very easily overlooked but it all just added up to an incredible formula between those things that were going on and just the mind-blowing moves that they just kept doing one after another inside the ring outside the ring we got another canadian destroyer that's three for this <laughs> that's show. three in a row no less yep. all three matches to start it off yep but uh, i took some some notes here on just some of some of the moves that we saw here because it was so wild we got a good spike pile driver on a mega and i always like a good pile driver we don't see them too much in some other companies so we got the indie taker, you know, spike tombstone pile driver on the metal ramp. The Meltzer driver. Yeah, the Meltzer driver. We got Adam Page doing his best Bob Backlund impression and then oh, put totally the hit chicken, that wing. chicken wing. Yeah, that was a sweet chicken wing too. It's been a while since I've seen that move. I was like, that's awesome. Yeah, but not only doing the chicken wing, he gave us the full Bob Backlund like freak out. It was so good. Such a good callback. The there was one moment where Kenny Omega gave I think Nick Jackson two back to back snapdragons and they went straight into a tiger driver and I thought for sure the match was gonna be over but then they still kicked out and it was just I mean there was like what five six seven false finishes to this match at least right at least and you really you didn't know which way it was gonna go because you know the young bucks are so synonymous with the elite and AEW. And you're thinking the one of the best, if not the best tag team in the world. For me, they're the best tag team in the world. They're, they got to win the belt sooner or later. So why not here? Why mm -hmm. not escalate this feud with Hangman Page? So, but at the same time, you're thinking, oh, well, Hangman Page and Kenny Omega just won the belts about a month ago, maybe yeah. a little less. So, like, they might not drop it right away. That either team could win and it would be believable and be real and you'd be happy with it. Yep. Yep. I definitely predicted the young bucks to win simply because of the Adam page storyline. Like I yeah. thought for sure that after, you know, weeks of building this, you know, he's like an alcoholic. He's, he's kind of standoffish. You know, I thought for sure this was going to be the moment page and Omega. This was going to be a mini team up in order just to build this feud. And then at double or nothing in the future here in May, we would get like a, a page versus Omega match or something along those lines. Yeah, and classic tag team stuff. Right. And they, they kind of went a different route. You know, we saw it kind of all came back together, right? Cause after all the turmoil, all the, the false finishes, I do have to say, I'm, I'm curious. Do you think AEW referees even know how to count? Oh, I don't. Get <laughs> yet. I was going to save this for later. I, I'm going to save this this complaint for a little later but no i don't think the aws know how to, referees know how to count and i don't think they know the full rules of the match yeah i think they just make it up on the fly and whatever whenever they feel like enforcing a rule they enforce it and then five seconds later if they don't feel like enforcing that rule anymore they don't yeah yeah it's definitely got that wcw aspect to it but 
Uh, I just saw that in my notes here and had to bring it up because it was a, a big theme. It's been a theme for all their existence so far, but last night it seemed to be very front and center that there was a lot of time outside of the ring with no, you know, DQ counts going. But anyway, so, you know, it kept going. But what I was getting at was I thought that it was kind of cool how after all the storytelling goes and this and that, you know, Omega's shoulders hurt. Omega goes for the one-winged angel, his signature move there to to finish the match, and he couldn't hit it because he's got the shoulder injury. And right. then Paige comes in and kind of gives him this nod. And I thought it was like this moment of bringing them back together, right? Like Paige has been very selfish, it seems, but then he goes and he delivers the one-winged angel to yeah. to one of the Jackson brothers. And I just thought that was a nice little tie. Like, I got you, Kenny. Like, we're we're still together here. Yeah, we're still we're still a tag team. We still need to work together to win this. We still wants the belt. Right. And I felt like that was the big story for him. And maybe when he was going for some intense moves that would potentially hurt one of the Jacksons and Kenny Omega stopped him when you know, when that went down earlier in the match, he was like almost, Come on, man. Like this is about winning right now. This yep. is about defending our belts and winning and keeping them. That's why I'm here. Yep. And I, I like that aspect of the story. Yeah. I mean, all four guys just, I, I know we keep saying it, it really go watch the match. If you didn't get a chance to catch it last night, I'm sure it's all over the internet, but it really was just a masterful piece of both storytelling and wrestling. Ultimately we did see after a number of big moves, uh, hangman comes in, hits, Back-to-back -back, uh, buckshot lariats on one one on uh, one of the young bucks to the outside, one on the other in the inside of the ring, gets that clean pin. People just were losing their minds. I mean, I one thing I had to say was like every time they would show the crowd through this whole match, and even there at the end, like people's reactions were just freaking. My brain is melting. Like, what am I watching? Oh my god! Screaming at the top of their yeah. lungs, like hands in the air, eyes like super wide. Yeah. All white showing. It was it was crazy, and but that's the intensity of AEW, and that's the intensity of this tag team division. That's what wrestling can do to people. Like it's what you want. Yep. And really, I honestly was kind of blown away myself because this was that absolutely match of the night. This match, in my opinion, absolutely is going to be a contender for match of the year. And yeah. freaking Kenny Omega in four days, in my opinion, had two matches between his Iron Man match on Dynamite with Pac and then this on, on Revolution that both should be match of the year candidates. You know, I, I thought that match with Pac on Wednesday night was the best match we'd seen all year, hands down across any company. And then, and then they came out with this, and it's like, how do you argue with Kenny Omega? I mean, like, that dude is just... All on fire right now. And good for him because for a while, people were saying, oh, Kenny Omega isn't what he's all cracked up to be. Like when AEW first got going, people were like, Kenny Omega is one of the best wrestlers in the world. Like easily a top five, maybe top three, maybe best wrestler in the world right now. And a handful of other people were answering back like, no, Kenny Omega is not all he's cracked up to be. He's not that good. But then he delivers on two matches like this, four days from each other. And you're like, okay. Kenny Omega is legit. Yep. And most guys, you know, you see, like, you'll have a big match, and then they'll come out, say say it's a – and it doesn't have to be company-specific, but just say, you know, a Sunday night pay-per-view for WWE, and then that same guy will come out and wrestle on Monday night. And they may both be good matches, but they'll definitely be a 
difference in level of, of effort, you know? And it's just like, it doesn't matter when you're seeing these guys wrestle. They just, it's 110% every single time. And Omega just proved that he is absolutely one of the best in the world, given all that. So, I don't know. This was, this was uh, we could talk about this match for hours. Um, I know we got to move on here, but. Yeah, last bit I really enjoyed was the ending tease of Hangman Page turning on Omega. Even after they get the win, everything's settled down. Omega's in the ring with the Jacksons. They're trying to heal wounds and shake hands and still be all good. And Hangman Page walks out of the ring. He's going to leave him behind. And finally, they're like, okay. The Jacksons like, all right, he's not going to shake our hand, man. He's not going to shake our hand. And they just get out of the ring. And Omega's kind of doing the, hey, like, oh, come on, come back, come back, with his back turned to Paige. Paige puts his belt down, and then he leans back on the ropes like he's about to do the buckshot lariat and hit Omega and and seal the turn. And the crowd, you could tell, like, the crowd, there's this intensity, and there's, like, a (laughs) silence before it was going to happen. Everyone thought it was going to go down. I think maybe even the commentators thought, like, Tony Schiavone and JR and Excalibur, they saw it coming, and then... It didn't. He yep. picked the belt back up. He held the ropes for Omega. They shook hands. They walked off. And you're like, oh, my God, this is just mwah, so good. Like This turn, this inevitable turn is building to the perfect moment. Oh, yeah. yeah. I thought it was happening last night. They kind of had faked us there. But you're right. It's another interesting storyline that we're going to have to follow moving through the next couple of weeks. Well, that puts us about halfway through the card here. We've got four more matches to go. It was borderline impossible to follow those two matches between Darby and Sammy and then the Young Bucks and Kenny and Paige. But somebody had to try. Unfortunately, it probably wasn't the best card choice here to to put the women right after them because there was very little build for this match. So there was very little investment. But we did have Nyla Rose, new women's champion, going up against uh, contender Chris Statlander. And Nyla Rose came out in a Deathstroke mask, which was pretty sweet, right? She had that that full Deathstroke look. And sadly, it was probably the best thing about the whole match that happened. Yeah, this, this match was just rough all around. It was not a clean match, a lot of missed spots. The crowd seemed exhausted. And of course, they're going to be exhausted after the two barn burners that they just watched. Yeah. So... It was a tough spot for the women in this in this particular card where how is anyone going to follow up that match? Somebody's got to try. But you know what? Like you got to be better. Like if you if you're going to be champion or contending for a champion and there's only going to be one women's match on the card, you do need a better showing. And there there's no excuse for that. Like yeah, the crowd fell a little flat and the energy was low. But that shouldn't stop you from having a good in-ring performance, and it seemed like it did here. Yep. I totally agree, whether it was just that maybe Nyla and Chris haven't wrestled a lot together or what, you know, because they've been doing much shorter programs and, like, very little build between the women's matches on AEW so far. It it did not go together well. And I know there was some talk that Statlander had, like, the flu earlier in the week or wasn't feeling very well, so maybe that came into some of it. I mean, she missed a nip-up. She had to save it with, like, a weird back egg roll kind of look. She was out of position a few times. It was it was so sloppy that literally, I don't know if you caught this, but Tony Schiavone actually blatantly called it out on the coverage. Like, there was one point he was like, this is just full of mistakes. 
and me and Ooh. me and Anthony were like, "What? You know, you don't see that too much." And like, I don't, I don't know if he was surprised, right? Like he was expecting more, or if he was just trying to help save it. Something, you know, yeah. I don't know, but it was just it was that bad that the commentators were openly talking about it, and I mean, it it even got to the point where, like, I. There was one move where Chris was giving Nyla like a superplex and didn't even plant her foot on the ropes and like it it looked like she was about to drop her on her head and I think yeah. Nyla pretty much saved herself by like getting fully flipped over but I don't think Chris could really deal with Nyla's size and weight you know as she was trying to to do some of these movers so it, it felt painful. It was tough. You you felt so bad for him. So when I say like you know you need to be better, I say that as just simply critiquing them that doesn't mean i don't want them to be better or i don't think either one of them deserve totally the spot yeah totally because i both of them deserve to be there they're great performers uh but it was not it, you need a better showing and i would have liked to see a better showing as far as tony i thought tony shivani and jr did a lot of just blatant calling out what was happening in the ring jr way more than tony mm-hmm. but they were they weren't giving any shortcuts to those performers last night like if they did something that didn't make sense logically or like jr was really bad about calling out the refs yeah and where it's like yeah i'm gonna knock on the refs for not knowing how to count to 10 but that's for me to recognize i don't i don't know if i want jr pointing that out as a commentator right because it, it brings that attraction like a lot of people aren't even going to pay it at any attention but if jr starts talking about it then they are and so I know what you mean there. I definitely feel like this match did a few things for me, though. Even though it it struggled as a match, I will say I think at this moment in time, watching this match, it solidified my opinion that Nyla Rose is the best women's wrestler that AEW has. I also think that it solidified the fact that the AEW women's division needs some serious freaking work. And and it's not that they don't have talent. They just don't have talent on both sides of the coin. Like, they've either got folks that are decent in ring, but are horrible on the mic, you know, or a little bit of vice versa. But none of those, none of those ladies are at the level of the WWE women's roster, and not even close. Nyla might be the only one I think could could maybe hang in there, and she needs some more work on the mic. They need to give the women more time in general on AEW because because they they haven't done that. You know whether it was because Rio couldn't speak, you know, and cut promos in English or whatever it may be. You know, it's just since the get go they've really struggled with like actual full TV time. But I don't know. Like that was really my biggest takeaway out of the whole thing was just. Who else do they even have other than Nyla Rose? Like, I thought I was bought into Britt Baker originally, and then she started just choking every time they put a mic in her hand. I don't know. No, I don't there, know if you have any thoughts there, much. but... I, I, It's hard not to agree with that, because it just seems like AW has done so well with spending time and building quality men's characters and tag team characters in all the other areas. So why is it falling flat in the women's division? Like where's the TLC? Like the, where's the tender love and care that you're putting into the men's storyline and the tag team storylines and the time and the TV commitment? Why is that not there for the women? And maybe it's because lack of talent uh, or lack of trust. Who knows? That's behind the scenes things that yep. we're not aware of. Uh, but they, they do 
They need to do something with it. They need to fix it somehow. And I think they're on the right path by putting the belt on Nyla because she's going to be there week in, week out. Yep. I know Rio has an insane schedule to appearances in Japan, which is why she wasn't on TV as much as she should have been. But we'll see where they go. And they're sooner or later, I feel like with AEW and the women's division in AEW, I keep cutting them some slack and saying, oh, we'll see. We'll give it another couple months. You know, whether it was they're a new company with a new roster let them time to develop. And now it's, okay, well, they finally got the belt on somebody that's there week in, week out. Let them develop this. And maybe the Nightmare Collective comes back and Awesome Kong wrestles. There's a lot of options. We just need them to start investing in those options. Agreed. Agreed. And I think it was Sarah Beth who said to me when we were talking about this a little bit this morning about you know, with just how much talent they do have in the men. Like, I'm sure some of it is just like, it's an all-star roster. So you have guys like Omega and Pac and them that are just tearing the house down freaking every time they step in the ring. And so it really puts the bar at a very, very high level if you're going to take any time out of that card, right? And and it's just the women, they just haven't quite gotten there yet. And I think that they need to shake up that roster a little bit, maybe finding some new talent. I don't know what it is, but just nobody there is very compelling outside of Nyla Rose to me. Nobody has been able to capture the audience. And so it was just, it was an interesting look. Love women's wrestling. It's on the up and up. Nyla could be dominant for a while, but they've got to figure out what they're going to do with that division. We'll see what happens because I know that AEW is getting a second television show coming soon. So maybe with with a second television show, whether it's an hour or two hours, that's more television time. Yeah, but that's going to be like more next year or... I mean, it's a, it's still ways off though. It's, I don't think they're going to yeah. drop that this year. I think it's still going to be. They they did sign like TNT. I saw the headlines. Like, I remember when they came out a couple of weeks ago. But I want to say that it was like a 2021 or beyond oh. type date because Dynamite is still getting late. is still getting established. Before we move on here and kind of get too far away, I know we we moved from the match to more about the the women's division in general. We, we do have to cover what happened here. And, and ultimately, after kind of the cringeworthy match that it was, Nyla did hit a pretty big, I think they call it the beast bomb from the top rope and pin Statlander to really give us all some mercy and end the shit show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was hard to watch and they kind of just got out of there. Uh, hopefully, you know, I really kind of felt bad a little bit for Nyla more than anything because it was her first pay-per-view as champion and, and I thought that that was probably a big deal for her. And whether, like we said, it was Statlander having the flu or or just needing more more time to get her shit together in ring, you know, it just didn't come together. But we'll see what happens moving forward. I'm sure that they'll be able to bounce back a little bit, kind of nowhere to go but up from there. So now we started getting into really the matches that everybody was looking forward to. These, well, at least two out of the three had the most build out of the whole card. And uh, it kind of took us into a little bit of a different feel and direction for the for the card after all the excitement from the beginning. So next up here, we had the grudge match between Cody and Maxwell, Jacob Freeman, MJF. Honestly, I have to say the live band entrance for Cody was pretty cool. I think that was a first in history. You know, he had his his band out there that does his theme song like we've seen at other times 
had a huge group of people supporting him. You know, this has gone on for weeks. Tons and tons of buildup for this match. Tons of sacrifice from Cody's side to get another shot at MJF. He had freaking Stephen Amell show up. What were your thoughts there seeing Stephen show up for the entrance? Green Arrow in the house. What up? I, I did like that. As soon as I saw him, I was like, is that Stephen Amell? Oh, snap, that's Stephen Amell. Like, I kind of freaked out. I was like, that's awesome, that's awesome. I know that they're friends from their, they had a little spot back in the WWE days, and then Cody guest starred on Arrow. Yep. Uh, so I, I was super pumped to see Stephen Amell. I, I wonder if it's going to lead to more appearances at AEW shows, of course, or maybe even get in the ring again. Of course, that was my first thought, right? was like, ooh, double or nothing in Vegas or something. Is Stephen Amell going to tag team? Could see it. He looked good last time he was in the ring, so we could see that. I liked his entrance. You talked about the band. I actually did not enjoy the live performance. I thought everything about that entrance was super cool. All of the his team coming out with him, the visuals of it all, but there was something off about the audio quality of the live performance, and it, it just didn't, it wasn't sitting well with me. Fair enough. It always changes things. I thought that the, probably the the thing that stole the show more than anything was the weird ass neck tattoo that nobody knew cody had until he showed up <laughs> it, that it was so distracting i i would say like the first five minutes of the match like i kept looking at it and we, i know you and i were texting a little bit like is it real right is it not real is it a temporary thing like just for the showcase because it's the it's the american nightmare logo so like his the logo he's put on for himself and the uh his family and all of that but it, it almost looked so bright and so vibrant and in such a weird spot on his neck that you thought, okay, this is just a product placement. Yep. It, there's no way it's real. And then as the as it went on and it wasn't fading, you're like, oh, my God, no, that tattoo's real. Mm -hmm. Like Cody Rhodes got a neck tattoo very recently. Yeah. Had to have had to have been within the past week before this pay-per-view. And it, you're right. Like, it, it kind of stole the show it, it, for this match, at least for the first half of the match trying to figure out if it was real or not. Yeah, it came off as a better heel than MJF did, honestly, because everybody seemed to be like, what in the hell did he do to himself? Super glad he liked it, you know, apparently, but really, really odd, and it was very distracting, so it could not have this conversation without at least bringing it up. Yeah. Match itself, honestly, did not really come across as intense as expected. Like, I expected this to be... More on par with, like, the Dustin Rhodes-Jake Hager match earlier in the night. You know, very brutal, hard-hitting. And it wasn't. It was more of an old-school, on-the-mat match. A couple good yeah. spots here and there, and definitely still a little bit of storytelling, right? But, you know, I thought that it was devoid of really big excitement. It was devoid of big payoff. Arn Anderson clearly doesn't know how to enforce anymore because he had, like, four or five chances to, to be the enforcer and help get rid of Warlow and stuff, and he just kept doing nothing, you know? I don't know. It, Threatening him with a chair. Yeah, he threatened him with a chair, but it just, other than that, I thought that it was it was a different match than I was expecting all around. What were your thoughts? It was slower than I thought it would be. I, I really thought with the blood feud that this had been set up to be, these guys hate each other. Like Cody wants his revenge. MJF is, you know, he dislikes Cody. He feels like, oh, you always held me back. It's supposed to be this, like, down and dirty. They hate each other. And it, it just ended up, like you said, it being a slow-paced, old-school, chin-lock, ground-maneuver-type match. 
which didn't make sense. And it, and it also didn't make much sense following this slower pace of the women's match. You you would have seen thought that, okay, these two veterans would have seen what's happening in the women's match and how slow it was. We got to get this crowd back up. We got to get them energized. So let's go out there and really take it to each other. But they didn't. And maybe they their plan was to do this slow pace, so they wanted to stick to their plan. But it, it didn't have that payoff, that like I said, blood feud, the absolute disdain for one another that the story was telling, Yep. but it didn't translate into the match. Exactly. They did such a great job building this match, and then it just it fell flat. And neither of those guys are the same type of wrestler as some of the folks we saw earlier on the card. You know, Both of them are athletic. Both of them clearly capable of multiple styles in the whole nine yards, but they are more of a traditional skill set you know they aren't doing all yeah. non-stop flips and you know all of that kind of stuff dives they, they can but that's just not their their go-to set so it really came off flat and the crowd started to still be flat after the women's match too so it kind of started to formulate right in this whole thing that we were watching and it was just it was a good match and it felt like you know okay like this would have been a good dynamite main event or something like that but for the purposes of settling this feud it did not come out the way I think that they were hoping for. There was a couple of botch moves. Like they had this weird suplex over the top rope that just looked really wonky. Like they missed the spacing of it as they were going over the rope and it almost looked like they were about to hurt each other. It looked like they got tangled up. Yeah. When, when that happened, I think it was Cody dumped MJF over the edge. And then as MJF was going over, they still were in the headlocked, like the armed headlocked position. Yeah. So it, it pulled Cody over as well. And it was like, oh, did somebody forget to let go? And then they realized that if we're, we're past the breaking point and if somebody lets go, somebody's going to get hurt. So just yeah. hold on and flip over as well. That I, I have that written down as WTF, what was the over-the-rope suplex? Yeah, it just didn't look like <laughs> they meant to do it. I, I wasn't surprised that MJF ultimately won this. You know, Cody took him to the edge, beat him within an inch of his life, um, had him, you know, begging to let him be and, and stop kicking his ass in the whole nine yards. But ultimately, MJF, you know, kind of cheats a little bit, grabs the dynamite diamond ring, gets the big punch, and, and steals the win by pinfall. I predicted MJF to win just because I didn't see how you could have a newer guy take that loss there. You know, like, you're still working to put MJF over and, yeah. you know, Cody is well over. But I know that most of the fans seem to be kind of upset about the fact that Cody – Took another loss. Yeah, and it was interesting as he was walking out of the ring, he just looked so beaten down. He kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like, he mouthing it to the crowd, like, I'm sorry, like, I let you down. So what I have written down here for this match is great story, good wrestling. Yeah. Like, the buildup is really good. The in-ring, AW is just so good at telling in-ring stories and continuing the out-of-ring story when it's in the ring, and it's amazing. And the finish with the AW, AW Dynamite ring slipped on MJF's hand, the knockout punch, all of that is great storytelling, but the rest of the match was just good for me. Yeah. I have to ask you, and I can recognize that MJF definitely has some, some skills on the mic, and he definitely has some skills in the ring. Like, he's not terrible when I say this, but I'm just curious, like, what am I missing with MJF? 
because I'm not really feeling him. And he's not high on my list of like, oh my gosh, and young guys that I've seen out there. If I'm being real honest, to me, he's kind of like vanilla pudding with a Burberry packaging. You know, like he's just <laughs> very bland, but then you throw on some fancy clothes and it like elevates him or something. But like, am I missing something here? It could just be I like vanilla pudding, but I actually, <laughs> uh, you know, like I don't know. Maybe maybe that's it. But I actually really like MJF. Uh, he's got a solid Twitter game. He he talks a lot of smack. He reminds me of like you know like the honky tonk man, in a bit where like he's not that great in ring, but he's a he's just a bastard, you know. So he's gonna <laughs> he's gonna get a sneaky win. He's gonna lie, cheat, and steal his way to victory. And he's just a really good talker. I think his promo game is just solid to me, and the way he paces himself, the way he chews gum, looks at people, presents himself. I think I think he holds himself in high esteem and has that perfect heel attitude, uh, at least for me, at least for me. And and so when he does all that, he doesn't need a strong in-ring set. And, and that's just my opinion. Like, if you're a really good heel talker and can really wind people up, he just has a punchable face, too. You just <laughs> want to punch him. And I think that goes a long way for me. So I, I really like MJF. Yeah, he does He does work good as a heel, and, and I've recognized he's good on the mic. It's just the total package there isn't coming through for me yet. And I guess maybe some of it, too, is I was really expecting last night's match to be a standout performance, right? Like he was going to do some things to really help put himself over even more. Yeah. And and it just didn't really come through. So... I just put it down here. It's like, is it is something that's wrong with me here? Because it seems like most everybody's like, yes, MJF, and and I've just been, I just haven't been feeling it 100 percent yet. So, could be a, a situation where he has a solid in ring move set, but they don't want to showcase it because they're already putting themselves in a situation where they have heels who are almost too popular. Because like Chris Jericho is supposed to be a heel. At a, you know, Hangman Page is supposed to be turning heel. So you have these bad guys that the fans like more than the good guys, That's which happens, true. A, Pac happens too. a lot. Yeah, yeah, Pac. Like, that happens a lot in wrestling. But maybe a way to keep MJF from getting into that territory is to not let you see what he can do in ring. Because if he shows off the whole package, then he immediately becomes always oh, he's a great heel talker. He's a he's great personality and he's good in the ring. Like, oh man, I'm gonna go buy an MJF shirt. Like, <laughs> no. What they want right now is for you to hate him and be like, I don't care what he says, he can't back it up in the ring. That's very true. That's very possible. It's possible. Or I could just be totally wrong and he is vanilla pudding. <laughs> but I like to think that that's what they're doing to me. So you're saying that he's vanilla pudding and there's like some sprinkles that are somewhere there. We just haven't gotten them. Yeah, yeah, he's got he's got a chocolate swirl that he just hasn't debuted yet. Maybe, maybe that's it. I I do want to say one thing because we we've talked about refs and one thing that happened in this match. How in the world does the ref, which I believe was 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 it Aubrey for this match? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Aubrey the ref Aubrey. How in the world do you stop MJF from using the belt to whip Cody? but then allow Cody to use the exact same belt to whip MJF. Yeah, completely looks the other way. Like, no, she let him do it. I know, well, she no. let him do it. Yeah, well, I'm saying, well, like, Cody, let me get him one. Yeah, no, I'm saying, Cody ass, essentially, and then they look the other way, like, turn the back. It's like, okay, and he whips it, and then, yeah, 
it, it was odd. And there's, you know, you can tell that they're really working to make the refs like characters as well. And I don't yeah. mind that so much. Like I like ref interaction and, you know, like all the great refs, Nick Patrick, Charles Robinson, Earl Hebner, they all came with a level of interaction when they were in their prime for their promotions, right? So you need some of that. But that was another one of those odd moves of just like, there's, so there's two different rule books, you know? Yeah. So Yeah. Is it because <laughs> Cody owns this place? Like, Cody's your boss that you're going to allow this to go down? It just seems strange. And as somebody that really likes logical rules, in my wrestling, for whatever reason, couldn't explain to you why I like it. But if like a match has a rule, then you need to follow that rule. I could not tell you how often I'm complaining about the open pun- or the closed fist punching, yeah, and and things like that, where it just gets frustrating because I'm like, it, it it takes you out of it. Like you get so invested in this match, and then you see things like that, and you're like, oh damn it! Like it shows you that it's kayfabe. It shows you that it's storytelling and a television show. When sometimes I'm so deep in it, I don't want to be reminded of that. Yeah. yeah. It's a fine line. And some of those rules do help try to give it more of that illusion of reality, right? And like true competition. And then you got to kind of suspend some of that when they do these things. But but it's clearly a line that they have taken in AEW that this is the approach to the refs. Some of the rules when it comes to counting are completely at their discretion and not a a dictated you have to start this if there's more than one person in the ring or if they're all outside of the ring you know those kinds of things because it's like every tag team match turns into a tornado tag you know because they don't even necessarily get on them when they're all in the ring so it's made it super exciting it gives them more freedom but it it also feels a little weird because i'm with you like i do like some of that consistency do it one way or the other because there's other matches where they start counting immediately I'm thinking there was a match where I can't re- it may probably Dustin Rhodes, Jake Hager. That's the one that sticks out because I remember seeing Dustin Rhodes roll back in to roll back out to reset the 10 count. And so I'm like, okay, so that rule does exist sometimes. Yep. What, I w- what I'd like to see if you are going to give your ref some personality and, and let them do that to their discretion, introduce a ref that's like super strict about it and actually counts people out. That's true, I w- yeah. I would love to see that, like, if that's the the place you're going to go. That's a good idea. That would be kind of funny. So then it's like they've got to know, like, I can't get away with stuff with this ref, but Aubrey lets me do anything, you know, whatever it may be. That'd be kind of interesting. All right, well, let's keep moving on here. I know we've got just two matches here to wrap up. The next one was kind of a last-minute add to the card just earlier in the week, but I know that there was something that they've actually been building – a lot longer, just very subtly, than most people thought. I saw some folks were like, oh, there's no build for this match. And I'm thinking back to when AEW was in Charlotte because there was a tag team match between the best friends and Pac and Jericho. But Orange Cassidy was there, and they started to square off Orange Cassidy with Pac with some of the little you know, shin kicks, and like the whole crowd went nuts and didn't feel like a feud was forming at that moment, but they kind of just kept it going, and it led up to... Pac versus Orange Cassidy last night, right before the main event of the Revolution pay-per-view. This was the very first time I got to see Orange Cassidy wrestle. I will admit that. I mean, I've seen some highlights online, but you know, as far as a legit match, this was my introduction to Orange Cassidy, and I was really impressed. I could not believe how well 
he made the crowd interact with him on every single thing he did. I mean, this was the match that brought the crowd back to life after the the previous two kind of went flat. What did you think about this one here? No, the investment the crowd has in Orange Cassidy is tremendous. And it's it's funny you say that this is the match that brought the crowd back. I actually thought after it was all said and done that this match and the women's match would have been a perfect flip-flop. Sure. Because it, was, it wasn't exactly high-paced. The, they, they did some high-spot moves. They did some quick moves once they got going. But it was a little of that slower pace. But it, in, it got the crowd invested. And I thought that this would have been a better spot or the women's when the women's wrestled would have been a better spot for this match because the crowd would have been able to stay like low energy, but still be invested Sure. versus what happened with women's match. But I, you know, I just wanted to put that out there, but the match was, was awesome. Seeing OC like orange Cassidy wrestle with his hands in his pockets is incredible. Like the the athleticism that it takes just to pull off these moves normally is amazing. But then, then to see somebody do all of those same things with their hands and their pockets, it's pretty awesome and absolutely incredible. Uh, and it's no wonder that the crowd and the fans have taken to him. Yep. Because he, he's just, you know, cares. His, his charisma level is just boosted. Right. Like his just appearance, his nonchalant attitude. Like, it's just amazing. So many people have invested in him. I'm one of them. Yeah, the gimmick is so good. It's so good. And you barely got to see much of it leading up to this, you know, if you're just watching the AEW stuff. I, I, I died when Tony Schiavone at one point said, I literally took the quote here. He said, Orange Cassidy is the king of sloth style. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, he I, just does everything so slow. And like you say, he doesn't try. And normally a guy like that who's that size, he's got that typical cruiserweight build right you know he's not a huge dude he's he's got a ton of speed you can see him moving around the ring like that guy is very athletic but he takes this approach this really unique gimmick of like oh i'm just gonna like tap you yeah like a little leg kicks when he when he was doing the pencil rolls back and forth in the (laughs) ring and he just like kept (laughs) using the momentum as Pac would move him and he was just like wouldn't stop pencil like it was just so entertaining it was not the best match by any means, but it was so freaking funny and surprising. I mean, just go through the word. Like, it was just entertainment at its best. Well, it was, and they, they busted out the this is wrestling chance yep. for it. Because yep. sometimes this is what you need on a wrestling card just something goofy to lighten the mood, to give you a good laugh. Like, not all wrestling needs to be insane, uh, you know superstar versus superstar like for the biggest match ever or for a title like you can have just some goofy nonsense yeah. and it's still incredibly entertaining it's like half circus you know or it's supposed yeah. to be it always was kind of traditionally right <laughs> yeah, it's always and it kind of gets back to those roots of those being a sideshow act at a circus one little spot that i thought was super cool is that he t- when he did take his hands out of his pockets he got into kind of like a few um, like back and forth sh- test of strength with Pac. And then he did like a quick flip. And the way Pac sold it was incredible. Like this, okay, so he wrestles with his hands in his pockets and he's good and he gets the job done. But when he took his hands out of his pockets, Pac like 
immediately got overpowered and flipped over yeah. quickly. And, and Pac, like, looked up and got stunned. Like, <laughs> what the hell was that? What the hell was that? And Orange Cassidy just kind of looks at him, like, nonchalantly. It's like, this is what happens when I use my hand. Yeah. Like, I own you. If I wanted to own you, I could own you. But eh, I'm okay with getting a B. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great character build. I mean, he he's just masterfully put together. And I don't know if it's just, I mean, that was something he came up with, whatever it may be. But bravo. I, I hope we get to start seeing a lot more. I will say I was really surprised that he lost this match. I predicted that he would win. Kind of the same thing with Jake Hager, right? Making a debut, lots of hype, the whole nine yards. But it was kind of a tough call because Pac came off the loss uh, in the Ironman match on Dynamite. And Pac's been definitely you know one of the hotter guys in the promotion. So I guess it made sense that he ended up getting the win via the Brutalizer for the submission victory. And it wasn't completely clean, right? Because the Lucha Bros did come out towards the end of the match. They started, you know, distracting Cassidy. They started attacking the best friends. So that kind of opened up the opportunity for Pac to, to get the win. So it wasn't a total, you know, loss on Cassidy. But at the same time, I I was surprised that that they they didn't let him get that victory right out the gate. I, the distraction made it just such a solid finish and smart finish because, as I've said before, Pac's character needs the wins. Like he, He's a guy that's all about the wins and losses. He's all about staying tough. OC's character is more, eh, if I win, I win. If I lose, I lose. And he doesn't need to win to stay popular. Very I think true. That's, that's become kind of he's so just like whatever about everything he loses he's going to come back on wednesday the crowd's still going to go crazy for him he's still going to go back to his same old shtick so it worked perfectly where it's it was a distraction finish so like that immediately puts a small asterisk on it so you're not totally burying orange cassidy that's very orange true. cassidy orange cassidy's character doesn't care about wins and losses anyways he's just here to have a good time so everybody's still over everybody got what they needed i thought it was a smart finish yeah i, I can't argue with that I, I I guess I got to get used to the fact that part of his shtick is that he's like only half invested in anything, you know? And so that does kind of create a different dynamic for him specifically when it comes to some of these things. So yeah. he's just unique and he earned, he deserves all the credit for, for doing that. Definitely a guy I want to watch, you know, and see really where his, where his limits are. You know, is he a guy that can go all the way to the top and hold some belts and, and keep the crowd engaged for a long term, or is this going to be uh, more of a fad because he's come out of the Indies, he's now on TV, and then people are going to get tired of it? So I think that's probably the bigger question with him. Well, you hope it's sooner or later. If if that does start to get old, then he turns it on. Yeah, and and he has the right ability to say, okay, I need to start trying, or I am going to start trying, and then they start a real build for him towards the top. That's possible. Yeah, you turn yeah, like I'm actually going to give it effort now, you know, like 100% yeah. Cassidy. 100% <laughs> pulp free. <laughs> I think at one point the crowd actually was uh was was chanting like lots of pulp or something like they were like going through different versions of orange juice and then I just wanted to be yeah. like with calcium, with calcium, with cal- you know. Yeah. <laughs> Vitamin D. Vitamin D. <laughs> Well, the last match we had here after they uh, they brought the crowd back to it was, of course, what everybody was here for. It was the men's championship, the heavyweight championship fight between John Moxley and Chris Painmaker Jericho. 
another match that had a ton of buildup leading into it. We saw, you know, offers for Moxley to join the inner circle. We saw total turmoil happen where he stole the $250,000 Ford GT and told Jericho to shove it pretty much. I don't want any part of your inner circle. We saw him, you know, lose his eye, wear an eye patch for the last couple of weeks. He had to run the gauntlet through the whole inner circle in order to get to this point and fight Jericho. So there was weeks and weeks of build here. And and ultimately, I think that this match did, you know, have a pretty good payoff. Went a little different than I expected, but it was a, a good fight. Kind of put Moxley through the paces yet again. And then had kind of an interesting finish. But uh, what were your thoughts here? So the very first thing I have down here is the style of the match completely makes sense, but at the exact same time completely makes no sense. And I think that, for me, it went back to rules uh, because this was not a no-holds-barred match, correct? Right, but they completely took it as a no-holds-barred match. Yeah, completely. And so I'm going to get my complaints out of the way. And then because I did enjoy it. Let me make that clear. Like I I did enjoy the match. Moxley going through, like you said, getting put through his paces and Le Champion. Chris Jericho is just amazing, even at 49 years old. But for JR to consistently keep saying, you know, Ref Aubrey, she calls it by the books. She calls it by the books when the match was so clearly not being called by the books Mm -hmm. like. They went and they fought through the crowd and up through into the rafters and everything. And then it was like this moment where I think even Tony Schiavone was said something or somebody said, like, should this match have been like DQ'd by now? Yeah. Like, and that's what I mean, like where it all made sense that it's these two want to have a match like this where they fight all over the arena and beat the crap out of each other. But at the same time, that that wasn't the rules of the match. Yeah. So why is it being allowed to happen? I actually had something similar because I think at one point Tony or Jericho, Tony or Jr. actually said clearly Jericho is trying to do everything he can to get disqualified. Like at one point he even slapped Aubrey on the ass. Like yeah, he on pushed the rep- her. Yeah, he pushed her and then like slapped her on the ass. And like they made these comments, and it's like, well, no, he, I mean, he would have been disqualified like four times over. Like, he used a weapon when they were out in the crowd and like attacked Mox, you know? So, it definitely, they need to kind of get some consistency going there. It, it would have been nice. It just feels weird if you're paying attention. It does. And it would have been nice if they had followed that comment up with like, oh, Aubrey's not going to give him the time of day and d- DQ him. She knows that that's what he's trying to do. But she's not going to allow sure. it. So she's going to she's going to put up with all this stuff to make him be a fighting champion. Like th- you could have easily fixed it with one line like that. Sure. And they didn't, so it created this awkwardness. But all in all, it was a slobber knocker, down and out, hitting each other with weapons, hitting each other with barricades, wrestling up through the crowds, eventually getting back into the ring. Moxley cut himself right above the eye patch. There was a significant amount of blood there. Kind of a funny cut because they cut to him and there was no blood. They cut uh-huh. away and they cut back to him and there was a ton of blood. Well, yeah, right. So- <laughs> just, a, just a note on that, actually. I had a note here because because we were struggling. The three of us that were watching it were struggling to tell if the blood was real or not. I think he hit himself with a blood capsule. Well, maybe at first, but he actually, at the end, when he took the when he finally took the patch off, he had a deep cut above his eye. But I yeah. think between the camera angles and the fact that the eye patch was there and it kind of kept moving... 
Like, he kept fumbling with it, right? Like, all night, it was like, sometimes he was bleeding, sometimes he wasn't. And he kept having to adjust that eye patch to, like, I think Sarah Beth or Anthony, one of the two of them, literally said, like, is the eye patch full of blood? And, like, he, like yeah. we thought he was almost, like, pushing it to make it bleed, you know, to, like, as a, as a uh, prop. Yeah, like a... Because it was, because it kept going back and forth between him being covered in blood and not. Like, it was just weird. I, maybe it was just how the cut was. Or maybe when the doctor, because the doctor did give him a piece of gauze at one point, and he like yeah, hit it, pa- patch it up. Yes, I don't know if it like clotted it some or whatever it may be, but it was it was we couldn't tell if it was real or fake for a while there until he finally removed the patch towards the end as we came to the finish. There was some really weird move- moments in this in this match between the two of them, like when Moxley bites Jericho's stitches. You know, like, because on Wednesday night, Moxley headbutted Jericho and gave him legitimate cut that led to, like, nine stitches or something like that. And literally, then they come in and part of it, like, he full-on just, like, bites the stitches. And I was, like, pretty sure that's how you get coronavirus. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is not sanitary, Mox. That's not sanitary. Uh, but they told the story they needed to. I... I don't know what you thought about the finish, but I was actually surprised that Mox got the win here. I did not think that Jericho was going to be ready to give up the belt just yet. I thought he was going to continue the dominant run. I was expecting more of a DQ type situation to where maybe this feud would go on a little longer. Yeah. I know Mox is super hot, and so him winning is totally fine. Like It does make sense in its own right, but but that kind of got me a little bit. What did you think? I wasn't too surprised that he got the win. I I felt like it was time to make that shift. And then you can't imagine that they are going to react to what the other wrestling companies are doing. But it was also interesting that for basically since Super Showdown on Tuesday with Goldberg picking up that win and taking the belt and everyone complaining that WWE is currently sitting with a 55-year-old champion and a 43-year-old champion. And then I was like, well, what about AEW? They have a 49-year-old champion, but nobody's complaining about that. And then the next pay-per-view, that 49-year-old champion drops the belt to a younger guy. You'd like to think that the plan was in motion to give it to Mox anyways, but it is an interesting talking point that after a few days of complaining about old champions, they make the switch and put it on a young champion. But Mox deserves it. For sure. He's been on on a battle. He's been on the up-and-up, and... I think the inner circle stuff was about to just kind of overstay its welcome a little bit where how long can you go by just being a group of guys where it's simply a numbers game? That's true. And that's your, and that's your advantage. And uh, I, I think they also needed to get the belt off Jericho because he's, he was starting to become too popular. That's true. And with the, the crowd singing, that's not what you want. If you want a heel champion, you don't want the crowd singing that champion's entrance as he walks to the ring. So I think that's why there was prepped in time for Moxley to take it and get it off Jericho because they, they had run the full storyline of everything the inner circle does and running roughshod over AEW. And Jericho is becoming too favorable with the fans as a, as a funny champion, as a heel champion. So let, let's shift it up a little bit and put it on Mox and see what he can do. I think he's waited a long time for an opportunity like this, so hopefully he soars with it. 
That's totally fair. I really can't argue with any of that. I definitely don't know if I felt like the inner circle and Jericho was ready to end their their run, and I don't think they're necessarily going to end it just because he lost. But you know, as I said, I was kind of envisioning you know at least a few more months of a really dominant title run. Maybe then he kind of takes a break, takes a step away, and then comes back just because he is older, right? You know, at some point in the next probably five years, Jericho's career is going to be close to ending. I mean, he's in good shape. Yeah. You, you know, you never know for sure, but there is an expiration date on most of these guys, and we're seeing a lot of them push it a lot further than we've seen in other other generations. So I had here, with the loss, a couple of questions for you as we wrap up. And so I was curious, like, what do you think it means for Jericho moving forward? Well, I think he's going to go on to still lead the inner circle, but I wouldn't be surprised if the inner circle kind of turns on him a little bit. And, like, now that you're not the champion, why are we following you? Sure. Like, you're, you're just an older guy, so maybe we could see him go away. The summer months are coming in. I'm sure Judas is going to go on a summer tour of some kind. J.J. Fozzie called his band Judas, his band Fozzie. I was like, oh, I was like, I said Judas, I'm like, that's not the name of his band. Fozzie is going to go on tour for a couple of months, so I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see Jericho for a while. Maybe, maybe someone turns on him, and maybe it's not the full breakup of the inner circle, but those guys are all soon to be set to go on their own separate ways. Like Hagar could have a solid singles run as a monster. Sammy Guevara, clearly awesome. Proud and powerful or just chomping at the bit to get a tag team title shot. So maybe Jericho gets turned on or fades into nothing. He disappears for the summer and then comes back in the fall, if I if I had to really guess. That's possible. We'll have to see. There's a lot of talent there in the inner circle, and there's a lot that they could do with them. So I, I, it just still feels a little too soon, but we'll see. We'll see. All right, so last question I had here for you then. Uh, with Double or Nothing coming up, their next pay-per-view in May in Vegas, who do you think Moxley's going to feud with? I could see something either happening with the Dark Order because they've been giving the Dark Order some wins and some pushes, and I don't know whether it's the Exalted one or not, but may if I think if they debut the Exalted one and they go after Mox, then that could happen. Okay. Uh I also think Pac, like, Pac, Pac, he's flirting just under the title shot, and he got the original title shot against Jericho, and he's been getting some big wins, and he puts on, like, he's a hell of a performer, so I think maybe that's who he feuds against, and I, and I think that would be an interesting matchup between the brawling style of John Moxley and the very good technical wrestling side of Pac, like, well, well, he also has a mean streak in him. Yeah. And, and now we have a fighting champion who can take some serious damage. Did you have someone in mind that you were thinking you'd see? Pac was kind of the obvious choice, I think, to me. And so that's why I was questioning it, because, you know, will they go with the obvious choice? And it seems like every time they get Pac right there, you think, no doubt, he's going to get to the to the very top. You know, he has taken a loss here and there, and they've kind of just taking him just a little bit back, right? They they're, chip him down. Yeah, they they're controlling him, him, which is probably smart. Not everybody can have the belt right now. I, I do think, though, that Pac and Moxley would be a brutal feud. I think that both those guys, the characters they've built, the intensity they have, you know, on-the-mic capabilities, in-ring capabilities, the whole nine yards, it would be pretty intense. Um, but I'm I just not sure. I, th- I like your I like your prediction maybe more on the dark order. That's, that's a... 
an out of left field prediction if they go that route that would be quite it all depends on who the exalted one is yeah yeah we'll have like that's really what it comes down to because if the exalted one is raven then no i don't want to see that i don't think anyone wants to see that but if the exalted one ends up being like matt hardy or someone like bigger name that we can really get behind i think it would be a fun little promo hopefully they wouldn't go too overboard on the numbers game but there's like six dudes if you count all the little minions yeah that's that's a lot of people to deal with and I, they had a they had a run in with Moxley a couple of weeks ago. I feel like yeah, they've they've had some run ins with a lot of people just here and there. Some have been more and you know done up than others. I I also think that the question comes in more is with Moxley just now winning. Like I, I can't see him losing at the next pay per view. And granted, since they've got more time between than like the standard one a month that WWE does, there's a lot that could happen between it. But you would expect that after the whole nine yards moxley's whole build that he's gonna have at least a a six month type run like jericho just did and so do they feed Pac to him just yet or do we do we let him have some of these other guys and we get you know some of those smaller title matches where you expect him to win kind of deal i don't know yeah we'll have to see i wouldn't know who to throw in that role like who's ready Pac is when you really think about it Pac is the only heel on the roster that's prepared to step into that role and the spotlight that it brings but then you you don't want to see him lose right so we'll see how it goes yeah they need another heel they they need yeah they need another heel and maybe it's jake hagar maybe jake hagar is like steps up and does something crazy and that becomes the inner circle bit because a lot of the heels are in the inner circle but none of them are single stars that could go to that level is what I mean. Like Sammy Guevara obviously is a single star, but like is he? He's not quite ready to challenge right. for the belt. I like the. I, I, I'm with you actually. Now that you say Hager, like I was, I wasn't putting him quite in the belt, and I wouldn't expect him to win. But that would actually be a very workable angle. You keep him at the top of the, the promotion on the dynamites, and then give him that early title shot to help just build his credibility. You know, defend the champion's honor. Yeah. And ultimately, probably Moxley would win in Vegas, but that I like that idea. Maybe we'll maybe we'll pick with that one and see if that goes. At this point, AW can do no wrong. So, <laughs> like, they're just there's been so good at at everything. It's just it's just been so good. So I trust in wherever they're going to take us. I, I trust that it's going to be good, and the matches are going to be good, and the stories are going to be good. Absolutely. So the Moxley era has officially begun, and we can't wait to see where it's headed. All in all, it was another top-notch pay-per-view for All Elite Wrestling. The company is really starting to flex all of its muscles, showcasing not only great in-ring action, but compelling stories with characters we can believe in. Thank you for listening to Geek Catch-Up. If you enjoyed today's chapter, please remember to subscribe to Geek Catch-Up on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Check out Geek Catch-Up on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Geek Catch-Up Pod for updates on new episodes every two weeks. You can find links to all these accounts in the show notes below or at our website, www.geekcatchuppodcast.com. Stay saucy, you nerds.